Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Savior Said. We are going to be working on the Come Follow Me assignment for September 30th through October 13th, Ephesians. We're covering the book of Ephesians. And that September 30th to October 13th may seem like a big long while. It's two weeks instead of our regular one week assignment. But remember, General Conference is going to be smack dab in the middle of that. So if I follow the same thing that I did in the spring with Spring General Conference, we're going to be about three episodes ahead for like the next couple weeks. You know I like to stay two episodes ahead of the current Come Follow Me assignment because I like you guys to be able to prepare Sunday school lessons and whatnot. With this, it's going to throw off that schedule a little bit, and we're going to be about three weeks ahead until we hit General Conference. Then, once we hit General Conference, I like to do a special General Conference episode that week. Um, Usually it's like Lexi's top five favorite general conference talks or something like that. And I'll put that episode out and then once that episode is out we will go back to our regularly scheduled two weeks ahead of time schedule. General conference throws things off so we will be super far ahead for the next couple weeks until finally we get back on track. Um, Also before we get started I want to say thank you so much to all the wonderful sweet people who have reached out about the mixtape episode that I made a couple of weeks ago. Um, A lot of people reached out and said it was exactly what they needed and I'm so glad to hear that because when I made it it was such a leap of faith knowing that I wouldn't be covering you know the exact scriptures that everybody was studying that week but just really feeling impressed like I needed to do that and apparently there were people out there that needed it. So um, I love the stories that you shared and it was just really cool to see that impact that it had on y'all. Now one of the things I think is so cool our Heavenly Father knows us so well, y'all. I mean, he just knows us so deeply. And it was kind of cool because, you know, I recorded that episode two weeks again before this week's Come Follow Me assignment. So it was two weeks ago. And y'all, I have kind of the goldfish brain where like I swim around a couple of times and I forget the castle is there. So I'll record these episodes. And then a couple days later, I don't even remember what I said. So when it's this week's Come Follow Me assignment, Before I go into gospel doctrine and things like that, I like to listen to the episode I recorded two weeks ago. So this week, I was listening to my episode from two weeks ago, which is the mixtape, and I'm listening to it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I need, because my week this week, y'all, was nuts. Like, let me just tell you, I just want to take a moment to talk about a little personal stories that happened this week. I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with Paul or anything, but like, this was my week. It started out... I'm a school librarian. In my school library, we had book fair this week, so we had parents visiting. I had, you know, the entire kindergarten class was there in my library, so, you know, we got like 30-plus kids and their parents in there, and I have my sixth-grade helpers in there helping out, and all of a sudden, one of the sixth-grade boys starts screaming, and he comes out, and he has a lizard attached to his hand, a live lizard, like, that came from outside, somewhere outside. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how it got in, but it was in the library somewhere. Somehow, and it had attached 
attached itself to his hand, and he's holding it up in the middle of the kindergarten book fair. Kindergartners are screaming, running around. Parents are, like, covering their children's eyes. I mean, it was, like, holy chaos. Like, it was just such a mess. So that was my Monday. And then by the end of the week, like, just incident after incident had happened this week. We found out finally that my son is going to have surgery on his nose next Wednesday. So if y'all want to throw up a couple of extra prayers for my son next week, that would be appreciated. But like, I mean, just the week was nuts. It went from the lizard in the library to like finding out we're doing surgery next week. I mean, that was just my week. So in the middle of all that chaos, the mixtape was something that I listened to. And I was like, this is exactly what I need. I need the anxious stuff. I need the knowing that it's going to be okay kind of stuff that came from the mixtape. So I am so grateful to my Heavenly Father who knows me, who knows the craziness that I have ahead in my life and who prepares me for it. So um, yeah, the mixtape benefited me too. So (laughs) good stuff, guys. Good stuff all around. But now getting to the issue at hand. Ephesians. So for the perfecting of the saints, that's the come follow me lesson that we are going to be talking about. So first of all, before we even jump into this, I love Ephesians. Like Ephesians is one of my favorite books of scripture. I've always considered it one of my favorite books of scripture, but then when we actually started jumping in and researching it, I found out something I did not know. And that was that there is historical evidence that this letter may not have been written to the Ephesians. Because Paul spent over two years in Ephesus. Remember that? He spent all that time with, I think it was Tyrannus. I always want to say Tyrannosaurus Rex, but it's not Tyrannosaurus Rex. It was like Tyrannus or something like that. The teacher, he spent two years with him teaching there in his school in Ephesus. Kind of formed a church there. He would know a lot of people in Ephesus. And there's no personalized greeting which we notice in a lot of his other epistles, there's always like a personalized greeting, like grace be to this person, grace be to that person and stuff. And there's none of that here. Also in historical copies that they have found of this particular manuscript, they have found that Ephesus has been removed and it's just blank. And so anywhere in this particular epistle that you see Ephesus, it can actually be subbed in for any of the cities that Paul taught in or, you know, or any of that part of the church there in the ancient world. Because what Paul did is he wrote this letter to be circulated among the different congregations. It would be like, you know, someone giving a BYU devotional and then, uh, you know, us sending it around and also benefiting from it as well. So Paul may have written this with the Ephesians in mind and, you know, kind of sent it to them first, but then everybody else got to benefit from it as well and personalize it to themselves with those blank spots of where in Ephesus is. So I hope that makes sense to you. You can look up more about it online if you want to. Um, There's lots of good resources about it out there. All right, so jumping into Come Follow Me. Having said all that about this not necessarily being written for the Ephesians, being written for just the early church in general, the Come Follow Me introduction does talk about Paul's time in Ephesus and why this would be so timely for them. And in particular, it says... Local craftsmen who produced shrines to a pagan goddess saw Christianity as a threat to their livelihood. Do you remember this where they had like the whole Colosseum full of people, you know, shouting about Diana of the Ephesians? There was like this whole market there in Ephesus for idol worship and 
Pa had taken away some of their the ways that they made money with soothsaying and things like that. So there was all kinds of uproar that Paul caused while he was there. Again, in Come Follow Me, it talks about in Acts 19, 27 through 29, it says the city, they were full of wrath and the whole city was filled with confusion. There's a really good contrast between what was going on in Ephesus then and what goes on in our modern culture. You know, we live in a society where people are shouting so many different things at us, so many different doctrines, political stances, philosophies of the world, different opinions, and everybody thinks they're right and everybody feels like they have have to fight for their opinion because if anyone disagrees with their opinion, then they must be wrong and this person must be right, right? We don't really have polite discourse about differing of opinions now. It's much more soapboxy. So I could see the same thing kind of being a parallel to what we go through in our society in our modern times. And so in the middle of all this commotion, you know, the shouting coliseum that we live in every day, Paul assures us and this is from Ephesians 2, 13 through 14, that Christ is our peace. And with these words, along with his invitation to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away, seem as timely and comforting now as they were then. For the Ephesians, as for you, the strength to face adversity comes in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we find those words in Ephesians this week as well. So, Definitely very timely. Um, One of the big themes that I see a lot in Ephesians is the idea of before Christ, we were separated into Jews and Gentiles. And after Christ, we come together in unity in Christ. And I love that and how this pertains to what we were just talking about, because there are so many different people in the world and there's so many different opinions and people come from different backgrounds and we are different. And then we come to Christ and we are one in Christ. And it's honoring those differences and using those differences to bless the other saints in our congregation that I think really helps us become one. So I loved looking for that theme of, you know, we were different, but now we're the same kind of thing here in Ephesians. because I saw a lot of it. Now going into the actual Come Follow Me assignments, the different sections that we have here, I actually want to skip over the first one about being chosen or predestinated um, real quick. And I want to go to the second one first because I feel like that actually leads in a little bit better to the first section. Okay, just follow me here. It'll make sense, I promise. All right, so the second section, which is from Ephesians 1.10, God will gather together in one all things in Christ. And it says, have you ever wondered what the dispensation of the fullness of times is or what it means to gather together in one all things in Christ? Well, I had never really wondered exactly what that meant because I figured it just meant the latter days, right? It just it just means the latter days. But then I started actually thinking about it and I'm like, you know what? I don't even know what dispensation means. Like, I just assumed it meant like a period of time. So I had to do some Googling to figure out exactly what does dispensation mean. And once I realized what the definition is, which I'm going to tell you here in a moment, it became very clear to me, like, oh, that makes so much sense. So if we look at the word dispensation, it sounds a whole lot like dispensing. Like you go to a vending machine and it dispenses your candy, right? So it gives you something. Well, if we go and we look at the definition of dispensation, it is a system of order, government, or organization of a nation, community, etc., especially as existing at a particular time. So it is the giving of order, government, or organization of a nation, community, or I could even add church 
at a particular time. So if we have the dispensation of the fullness of times, we have been given a system of order for a church in the fullness of times, which we know as the latter days right before Christ comes. So that was interesting to me to actually realize like that's what that meant. Dispensation was something different than I, than I thought previously it meant, but it's like dispensing, you know, how the church works and the keys to make the church work. So with that in mind, we're going to go back into our God will gather all things together in Christ. Ephesians 1.10, this is where the scripture that we're talking about, where all this is coming from. And it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And again, that goes to that theme of, you know, normally we're apart, but we come together in Christ and we are gathered together in Christ. Now, it asks you to go through the following scriptures and kind of build upon that thought. Like, how does that that work? So one of the scriptures that we're going to is Ephesians 4.13. And it says, Till we come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so right there, we all come together in a unity of our faith and of our knowledge of the Son of God, and we are all striving for perfection. Now, to expand upon this, I found a quote from Bruce R. McConkie that expands upon that phrase, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like, what does that mean, to come unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Well, Bruce R. McConkie has explained that it refers to the status of glory and exaltation enjoyed by Christ himself. The whole plan of salvation is designed to enable men to become like God. Those who gain infinite perfection shall be like Christ, and he is like the Father. Salvation consists in the glory, authority, majesty, power, and dominion which Jehovah possesses, and in nothing else. No being can possess it by himself or one like him. Christ received the fullness of glory of the Father, and he received all power both in heaven and on earth, and the glory of the Father was with him, for he dwelt in him. So when we come together under Christ, we have a beautiful future awaiting for us. And that future awaits not just us, but it awaits everyone who is one in Christ. And so that's really what I see happening there in Ephesians 4.13. All right, another scripture that Come Follow Me asks us to go look at is 2 Nephi 37 through 8. And it says, And it shall come to pass that the Jews which are scattered also shall begin to believe in Christ. And they shall begin to gather in upon the face of the land. And as many as shall believe in Christ shall also become a delightsome people. And it shall come to pass that the Lord God shall commence his work among all nations, kindreds, tongues and people to bring about the restoration of his people on earth. And so what I see there is the spreading of the gospel everywhere throughout the world. Missionary work, right? That's what's happening there in the dispensation of the fullness of times. We are literally dispensing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire world. We're like the best vending machine in the world, right? We're dispensing the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone who comes to us, right? And even some of those who don't come to us, we're still dispensing it to them too. So that's what I see there. It's dispensation of the fullness of times. We are sending missionaries all over the world. We are reaching all over the world through the internet and through different means of social media and things like that as well. All right, Doctrine and Covenants 110, 11 through 16. Okay, this is a big old honking section of scripture. And... I want to kind of like rewind to what is going on in section 110 so you can understand like the context that this is taking place in. So going back in, this is the section summary and the history of what's happening in D 
DNC 110. It says it's visions manifested to Joseph Smith the prophet and Oliver Cowdery in the temple at Kirtland, Ohio. April 3rd, 1836. The occasion was that of a Sabbath day meeting. Joseph Smith's history states, In the afternoon I assisted the other presidents in distributing the Lord's Supper to the church, receiving it from the twelve, whose privilege it was to officiate at the sacred desk this day. After having performed this service to my brethren, I retired to the pulpit, the veils being dropped, and bowed myself with Oliver Cowdery in solemn and silent prayer. After rising from prayer, the following vision was opened to both of us. And this is kind of a summary of the vision. The Lord Jehovah appears in glory and accepts the Kirtland Temple as his house. Moses and Elias each appear and commit their keys and dispensations. So that's really what the scripture section from Come Follow Me focuses on, is the appearance of Moses and Elias. And then Elijah returns to and commits the keys of his dispensation as promised by Malachi. So what we're seeing there is the restoration of the keys of the ancient church in the modern times. So that, again, that's the dispensation. We're dispensing from the modern church the keys and privileges that they had there into the modern times that we have now, the fullness of times. So that's what I see going on in that one. And that pairs up really well with the next section underneath it from Come Follow Me, which is Doctrine and Covenants 112, 30-32, which talks about the keys of the priesthood being given for the last days and for the last time. This is the last time that they will ever have to be restored upon the earth because it will never again leave the earth. And that's such a blessing in the dispensation of the fullness of times. And it talks about the power you hold in connection with all those who have received the dispensation at any time from the beginning of creation. So this has been dispensed not just this time, but other times it's been dispensed to the earth. The keys of the, this dispensation which you have received have come down from the fathers and last of all, being sent down from heaven unto you. And so I love that, the power of the priesthood. Now, going back to that first section of DNC that we talked about where, you know, Moses and Elias come down and Elijah, they talk a little bit there in verse 15 about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And I want to talk about that because I feel like that leads into our first section of Come Follow Me. All right, and you may be like, okay, so has God chosen or predestined some of his children to be saved? That's the section that I'm talking about. What would turning the hearts of the children have to do anything with that particular section? Well, let's find out. We're going to jump right in. Um, has God chosen or predestinated some of his children to be saved? Now, I like to use a commentary. It's an LDS commentary on the New Testament as I'm studying, especially the Pauline epistles, because sometimes I feel like Paul gets a little flowery and it makes him a little bit difficult to understand. So I like to use this commentary called the New Testament Made Easier. And they said in this particular scripture that they are talking about, where Paul spoke of the saints being predestinated by God, they said that the word predestinated was wrong. They said it was a wrong translation. And I'm like, whoa, that's some strong words. It's not just like, oh, you know, it maybe could mean these other things. It was like, no, this is a mistranslation. Predestinated is not the correct word here. The correct word from Greek is foreordained. So, has God chosen or foreordained some of his children to be saved? Well, as we read in the Come, Follow Me assignment, it says, As President Henry B. Eyring has noted, the fact that so many people live and die without even the chance to receive the gospel causes some to conclude that God must have determined in advance which of his children he would save and made the gospel available to them, while those who never heard the gospel were simply not chosen. Guys, we know that this is not true. Henry B. Iron continues, But God's plan is much more loving and just than that. 
our Heavenly Father is anxious to gather and bless all of His family. All of God's children can accept the gospel and its ordinances because of the work performed for the dead in holy temples. And this is one of the most comforting points of our doctrine and our gospel to me. I love this because I firmly believe that we do not have a gotcha God, like a God who's going to say, I'm going to use everything I can do to keep you out of heaven. Every little, yeah, you may have lived in India 600 years ago and never heard of Jesus Christ. So sorry, you don't, you don't get to come to heaven. Like he's not going to be like that, right? He's going to give his children every single possible chance that they can to come back to him. And this is one of the ways that he can do it is by using the temple and family history work. Has God chosen or foreordained some of his children to be saved? I don't necessarily know that they have been chosen or foreordained to be saved. I do believe that they have been chosen or foreordained to receive the gospel and to receive specific callings. But with great power comes great responsibility. Thank you, Spider-Man. Because those who have been chosen and foreordained to have that gospel have the responsibility then to spread it around, to share it with others. And then not only that, but this is where our other scripture about Elijah turning the hearts of the children to the fathers, doing the family history work and doing the temple work to make that come full circle, to gather in the children of Israel, to gather in the family of Israel here in the fullness of times and bring them all back into one in Christ. That's where I see all of this coming. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> that was the first two sections in Come Follow Me. All right, so the next section in Come Follow Me comes from Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. It talks about the church is founded on apostles, prophets, and Jesus Christ is its chief cornerstone. It says, reading Paul's teachings about apostles and prophets can help you prepare to hear the messages of modern apostles and prophets during general conference. Okay, according to Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, and 4, 11 through 16, why do we have prophets and apostles? Well, if we go and we read Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, it says, Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Remember, we're talking about the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one in Christ. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And I want to pause there because I feel like Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of our church. And then also we need to have Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of our testimony. You know, he needs to be the base, the foundation, the cornerstone of everything we believe. Because here's the thing. If you put your faith in your cornerstone and another aspect of the gospel, which is all good and well, there are ways for that to be shaken, but your testimony, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that won't be shaken. You know, a testimony in him will strengthen the rest of your testimony. It will be able to withstand the crazy society that we live in, the whirlwinds and crazy stuff that we're kind of going through, which they talk about in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, 12 through 13, it says, For the perfecting of the saints and for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which we've already talked about the fullness of Christ. But verse 12 in particular sounds to me like the threefold mission of the church, which I used to hear like all the time, but I haven't heard recently. But the threefold mission of the church was for perfecting the saints, redeeming the dead, and spreading the gospel, right? 
And so that to me right there in verse 12 is kind of addressing all of that. Now, to kind of go along with our theme of, you know, the various doctrines and stuff of the world, philosophies of the world tossing us around, Ephesians 4.14 says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So we live, I kind of feel like, you know, in a world that's you know, swirling around with all kinds of false truths and half-truths and things like that, the doctrines of men, the philosophies of men all around us, and we have prophets and apostles and leaders to lead and guide us through those storms of life, through the storms of, like, craftiness and falseness and things like that, to lead and guide us on the true path, and that's really what I see as their purpose. Come Follow Me then asks, specifically in our modern time, how personally have their teachings helped you not be carried about with every wind of dog? Well, for me personally, you know, I like to research stuff out. I like to research all the different angles and possibilities and, you know, the different opinions on different subjects and things like that. But I study it out in my mind and I can pray about the things that the prophet and the apostles say. And I can know that it's true for myself, but it gives me a focal point. Like, let me start on this focal point and put it to the test. Is this correct? You know, I pray, I study it out in my mind, I look at the other opinions out there, and I see eventually how they are flawed compared to this particular stance that the church has taken on this thing. Now, that doesn't mean that I agree 100% of the time with every single stance that the church has taken on something. I struggle sometimes with that, and there are lots of times that I have to pray fully to really understand that, and there are lots of times where I pray and my answer is, yeah, I know it doesn't make sense, but just be obedient and just believe. And that's kind of where I stand on it. So I don't always understand everything perfectly, but I do have faith in my prophet and I do have faith in the apostles that they are leading us in a correct direction. And so it kind of gives me a place, I guess, a light in the whirlwind as it could be. All right, up next is the section for Ephesians 5, 21 through 6 through 4. I can strengthen my family relationships. And y'all, I'm not even really going to touch on that because Even in Come Follow Me, it says, It's important to note that Paul's words in Ephesians 5 were written in context of the social customs of his era. So if we go back and we follow exactly what Paul was saying back in, you know, Ephesians 5, eh, it's a little archaic, okay? What I like to follow, the divine doctrine that I like to follow, again, because we do have modern prophet and apostles, okay, is the family a proclamation to the world. If you go in and you read that, that is how husbands and wives should treat each other. It's how they should treat their children. So that kind of makes more sense to me to go in and study the family, a proclamation to the world, than this archaic kind of social customs that Paul is addressing, if that makes sense. I hope it does. All right. Up next is my favorite part. I'm so excited. This is why I love Ephesians. This is putting on the whole armor of God will help protect me from evil. As you read Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, consider why Paul might have named each piece of armor the way he did. Okay, pause there, and I want to do a little rewind, and I want to go back into Ephesians 6, 12. And Ephesians 6, 12 is one of my favorite scriptures, and it may seem like a very strange scripture to pick out as one of your favorites, but I love it because it is such vivid imagery of what we are fighting against. And here it is, Ephesians 6, 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I love that because it's so descriptive that we wrestle not against, you know, 
things that we can touch, things that we can feel, things that we can actually fight. We are wrestling against principalities. That's like kingdoms of evil. We are wrestling against powers. How can you fight against powers? You know, that is the question. We are wrestling against rulers of darkness of this world. I mean, this is scary stuff. This is a very vivid imagery to me of the darkness that we are fighting. Like I see in my mind's eye when I read these scriptures, just like a roiling sky, like a thunderstorm with like darkness, dark clouds coming in, kind of across the horizon, just scary looking storm kind of coming in. And that's what we're fighting against, right? Well, to fight that, we have to have the armor of God. And we even read that in 13. It says, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. And that's where the armor of God comes in. Okay, guys, so this next part, you just need to know how much your Father in Heaven loves you and is looking out for you because I had this episode done. Like, this episode was wrapped and it was ready to go and I was ready to post it. This is Sunday morning. I was ready to launch it. And then I'm sitting in church and the Spirit tells me, no, Lexi, the way you have the episode currently done, which is I went into the whole armor of God and I kind of explained like the extra materials I had and how I did this girls camp workshop and everything like that. And I'm going to publish that as bonus material. But the Spirit said, Lexi, the way you have this right now, I know you're done, but it's not what this episode needs to be. And you need to go this other route on the armor of God and kind of explain it a little bit differently. And I'm like, dang it, but I was done and I have so much other stuff that I want to do and I want to work on next week's episode. And, you know, sometimes when I talk to my Heavenly Father, it's not always the most respectful. It's kind of like, you know, a cranky teenager. I think he forgives me for that. He loves me anyways. But so... We're going to do something a little bit different with the armor of God now. What I want to do is I want to go through each piece of the armor of God, and I want to pick out women in the scriptures who exemplify that particular piece of armor to me. And I love my sisters in the scriptures. Y'all know I do. So that's what we're going to do. And so I'm going to go ahead and start with the breastplate of righteousness. So we should wear the breastplate of righteousness as described in Ephesians 6.14, but also in DNC 27.16. And a breastplate protects vital organs such as the heart and our lungs. And our righteousness both in thought and deed protects the core of our spiritual lives. Now, the person to me who I thought really exemplified this was Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the reason I thought specifically that she exemplified these things is not necessarily because she was the mother of Jesus, but because of her reaction when the angel Gabriel came down to her and said, hey, you are going to be the mother of the Son of God. It was her reaction to it that made me think of, you know, she had this breastplate of righteousness around her. So let's go in and read in Luke 1, 26. This is where the angel Gabriel is coming to kind of tell her that she's going to be the mother of the Son of God. And let's look at her reaction real quick. And it says, And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. 
And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. So pause. So right there, we know that she is living a life of righteousness. We know that she is doing what she's supposed to. She's living according to the truth that she has been given at this point in her life. And she has found favor in the sight of God. So that right there to me sounds like a breastplate of righteousness. She's protecting her heart. She's protecting her testimony and doing what she's supposed to do. And this found favor in the sight of God. And Gabriel continues, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? She didn't say, oh, really? Like, I, like, how? No, no. I don't believe you, Mr. Angel. Like, come on. Which would have been my reaction, as you can tell from, like, just my reaction to, like, hey, you need to change this on the podcast. But Mary, because of her righteousness and because of her faith in her Father in Heaven, when the angel tells her, like, hey, you are going to have a baby, and she's like, uh, how is this possible? Because I don't, I've never even, you know, known, known a man. Like, how is this possible? That was her response, was not, this is not going to happen. It was like, okay, so this is going to happen, accepting this, like, but how? And I think just the fact that she asked that question, how, instead of disbelieving and being like, no, kind of like Zacharias did about his particular visit with the angel Gabriel, really shows to me where Mary's heart was at, and that she really was protecting her heart with that breastplate of righteousness. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. You know, Mary at that moment, didn't really understand, I don't think, the magnitude of what she just committed to, but she trusted her Father in heaven, and she used that righteousness that she had in her life, that she had protected her heart, she had protected her body, and now she was going to use it to bear the Son of God. And that's how I see Mary as having a breastplate of righteousness. And we even see how she protects her heart a little bit later when we read in Luke 2.19, And Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And don't you know that when Jesus was growing up, there were probably many times where she saw him do things that, you know, a normal kid probably wouldn't do. You know, maybe he made a choice, like a good choice, that a normal kid would not normally make in a situation. Or she saw him do something miraculous that a normal child would not be able to do. And there are probably many times where she pondered things in her heart. But she kept that breastplate of righteousness on and protect that heart where she was pondering things. So that's why Mary reminded me of the breastplate of righteousness. Now moving on to the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. A sword is a weapon used to strike the enemy. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword from Hebrews 4.12. And the power of the spirit can carry the truth unto the hearts of the children of men from 2 Nephi 33.1. And help people to know the truth of all things, Moroni 10.5, through the preaching of the gospel, D&C 35.13. With our testimony and the power and the peace of God's spirit, we can strike against and conquer the enemy of all righteousness. Now, 
the image that this provokes in me is, you know, of a sword slashing in battle and, you know, fighting in battle and all kinds of like crazy army stuff. And we don't really have a whole lot of women in the scriptures that are involved in all that. But do you know how we as women can fight with the sword of the spirit, the word of God is as mothers. And so for this, the women I want to focus on in the scriptures is the mothers of the stripling warriors as we see in Alma 27. Now there's a really awesome website out there called Women in the Scriptures and it's by Heather Farrell and she's written several books about women in the scriptures as well and I definitely recommend that you go check it out. I'm going to put some links to her work and stuff in my blog and on my Facebook this week. But she has a quote about the mothers of the stripling warriors and she says in Alma 27 the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi get attacked again and this time fled to the land of Zarahemla. The Nephites gave them the land of Jershon and vowed to protect them. They were then called the people of Ammon. Eleven years later, the Nephites were under attack from the Lamanites, and the people of Ammon wanted to help, but they didn't want to break the covenant they had made to God, which was not to take up weapons of war. Their sons, who had not taken this vow, volunteered to fight instead. Under the command of the prophet Helaman, 2,060 of them, referred to as the stripling warriors, went into battle. They were young and inexperienced and fought in several dangerous battles. Miraculously, not one of the stripling warriors died in battle. The prophet attributed this miracle to the faith, the teachings, and the examples of their mothers. So we as women, yeah, we're not out there wielding swords and in the middle of the battle, I guess, as it were, but we have immense power in the lives of our children to shape them, to help them become strengthened in the Lord and be able to fight on behalf of the Lord. And we do that by using the word of God and the power of the spirit. And we help them to know the truth of all things. And that is how I see as a woman how I can wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. By teaching my child as much as I can about the scriptures and about his heavenly father and about Jesus Christ. And about how to access them through prayer. And about how to form those habits in his youth so that later on he is protected by that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so I really love that example of the mothers of the stripling warriors. That's why I chose them. Now, up next, this particular piece of armor is the feet shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace. And shod means wearing shoes. And your feet represent your goals or objectives in life. Preparedness is the way to victory and eternal vigilance is the price of safety. The tide of victory rests with him who is prepared. That's from President Harold B. Lee. So for me, a woman who kind of encapsulates this meaning of the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace is Abish. And I love Abish. She's one of my favorite women in the scriptures. Um, she's a, one that I fall back on again and again and again as an example of different things. Esther's another one that I do. We're going to talk about Esther in just a minute. So in Alma 19, this is where Ammon is going and he's teaching the Lamanites. It's a little bit before the stripling warriors. We're like, you know, maybe 10 chapters or so before the stripling warriors. But Ammon is teaching the Lamanites. He He's teaching King Lamoni, and you know, we've gone through the whole thing where King Lamoni has accepted the gospel and kind of gone boom and like fallen over in a trance. And then Queen Lamoni comes in and she falls over in a trance too, and people are dropping left and right like flies. And all of a sudden, Abish, who has been converted to the Lord years ago by a vision of her father, she stands up and she says, Hey guys, I know what's going on. I know the gospel that King and Queen Lamoni are receiving right now. 
I know how they are coming unto Christ. And she is ready and she goes and she runs and she tells everyone. And to me, that is such a strong example of having the gospel always in your heart, even in situations where you feel like maybe it's not appropriate to share the gospel, to still have it in your heart and ready to share when the situation does become appropriate. You know, Abish was living in the middle of the Lamanites, which was not a place where she could share the gospel, but it was something that she kept in her heart and she treasured. And then when the moment came, girlfriend was ready. Her feet were shod and she took off and she ran and she told everyone the good news of the gospel, right? So to me, Abish is a huge example of having her feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. All right, the next piece of armor I want to talk about is the helmet of salvation. Focusing our minds on Christ and his salvation will protect us from unworthy thoughts, keep our eyes single to the glory of God, and guide us in our decisions. And for this, I wanted to pick out a woman who was so focused and singled in on Christ that she was able to do something kind of miraculous and able to kind of tune out the rest of the world. And so for this, I chose the woman with the issue of blood. And if you've listened to any of my other episodes, you know I love the woman with the issue of blood. Going back to her story, you know, she had whatever issue of blood it was. There are all kinds of gynecological disorders it could have been, but she'd had it for 12 years and she'd spent all she had on physicians trying to make it better and it wasn't getting better. And according to the law of Moses for those 12 years, she was unclean, which means that she probably, if she had a husband, had been divorced, her husband had probably left her, you know, she couldn't take care of her children the way she was supposed to there in Jewish society because she was unclean and it affected her life deeply in many different ways. It almost was as bad as if she had had leprosy. Like that's how unclean she was because of this issue of blood. And so she had tried on her own, on her own, the best that she knew how. She spent everything she had on physicians trying to make it better and it wasn't getting better. And so she hears about this guy, Jesus, right? And Jesus is in her town and she has faith that he can do this miracle. And so this is me kind of like, you know, I don't, not fictionalizing, but I'm kind of adding on a little bit, elaborating, I guess, in my mind, how the story plays out. So I see her in my mind, walking into this crowd where Jesus is and knowing that she's unclean and anyone she touches in this crowd is going to become unclean, but she's not worried about that. All she wants to do is get to her savior. And now in the Jewish society that they had there, there was, you know, lots of mysticism and things like that. They believed in lucky talismans. And so she thought if she would just touch the hem of his garment that he was wearing, the robe that he was wearing, that she would be able to be healed. It was kind of like a lucky talisman to her. And so that was what she focused in on. That was her helmet of salvation, her eye single to the glory of God. She knew that that robe was going to be her salvation. Not only in the robe, but the person wearing it was going to be her salvation. So she makes her way through this crowd, eye single to the glory of God, up to Christ. And I see her almost crawling on her hands and knees through the crowd to get to Christ and reaching out and touching his robe. And then the minute that she does, Jesus, of course, stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you kidding me? Like, look at all the people around you and you're asking who touched you. And he's like, no, I know. I know there's someone with faith that touched me. And it would have been very easy for her to turn around and run away at this point And just, you know, she had her healing. She'd been healed at that moment. She was dried up, right? She doesn't, though. She stops and she says it was me. And she then gets this moment with Christ that is amazing. He calls her daughter. And he says, daughter, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. I don't know of anywhere else in the scriptures where Christ refers to anyone as daughter. 
So because of her faith and her determination to find salvation through Christ, she was able to have that moment with him. And then not only was she able to be healed, but when he asked her who touched me and she was able to stand up bravely in the middle of this crowd and say it was me. When she had that bravery and that faith, she found salvation and she found a special moment with her Savior too, which I think is amazing. So that's why to me, she put on the helmet of salvation. She put on the idea that Christ is my salvation. He is my Savior. And she went after him. So that's why to me, she exemplifies the helmet of salvation. All right, the next piece of armor is the shield of faith. We should all pick up the shield of faith wherewith we shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. A shield is the most versatile and effective means of defense in battle. And our faith, if it is built upon Christ and his gospel, can defend us against the adversary's numerous onslaughts. Just as a shield, if it is made of the right material, will withstand a volley of fiery darts. Now, I know this is not a woman in scriptures real quick, but I just want to mention, um, this reminds me a whole lot of Captain America, because if you've ever seen the way Captain America wields his shield in battle, you know it can be a weapon as well as something that protects you, and it is made of the correct material. It's made of vibranium, and so you know that he can fight the bad guys. So if we have our shields of faith, we can not only use it as a protection, but also as a weapon against the enemy, and we know what needs to be made of the correct things. And Boyd K. Packer has said, in the church, we can teach about the materials from which a shield of faith is made. Reverence, courage, chastity, repentance, forgiveness, compassion. In church, we can learn how to assemble and fit them together, but the actual making of and fitting on of the shield of faith belongs in the family circle. Otherwise, it may loosen and come off in a crisis. And I love that too, because it talks about what we actually need to put into our shield of faith. And so a woman who, to me, exemplifies the shield of faith, where she was able to stand up and quench the fiery darts of the wicked, is Queen Esther. Now, I love some Esther. Like, love some Esther. And some people find that strange because Esther is the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God. But just because it doesn't mention God doesn't mean he's not alive and moving through those pages. Because you can see very much how he directs her paths for good and puts her in the right place where she can become a shield to her people. Um, Also, people sometimes think the book of Esther is a little strange because it's all about the story of a concubine, right? Where we have kind of like almost a systematic rape thing going on where there's all these women and they're spending the night with the king and he has to choose his favorite one. Um, So that's kind of like a not very nice situation that Queen Esther found herself in. But for whatever reason, she was found in favor of the king, and that put her in a position then to stand as a shield to her people. And it was her faith in her father in heaven that got her through us. And she even asked the Jews in the palace to fast for her for three days. And she and her maidens would fast also. And we see that in Esther 4.16. And she says, I will go unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. And here's the thing. We think that the king that is mentioned in Esther is actually Xerxes. And if it was Xerxes in the time period that this story would have taken place, they were in the middle of a war. And so for someone unannounced to approach the king in the middle of a war, like, do you see how this could be really bad for Esther? But 
She had faith in her God, and she knew that he would protect her. And so she fasted, her maidens fasted, and anyone else she could get to fast would fast with her. And she took the faith from that fasting, that faith from those prayers, and she walked into the king, and she was protected. And because of that, then she herself was able to become a shield. So I like to think of that in our lives. How are we put into specific situations to become a shield for other people? You know, how can we spread our faith to others and protect them as well as ourselves? And how can we strengthen that shield? And specifically, I love what Boyd K. Packer says about, you know, we can build that shield, but we need to make sure that it is fitted together in the family circle. Otherwise, it may loosen and come off in a crisis. So we need to make sure that that shield is strapped on, and the best way to do that is in our family. As mothers, we definitely become shields of faith to our family, and we help our family craft those shields of faith as well. The last piece of armor that we're talking about is the girding of the loins, okay? So it says we should have our loins girt about with truth, and loins means the area between the hips and the abdomen. Girt means tied around firmly with a belt, and generally to gird your loins means to prepare for action. We prepare ourselves to take action in the battle against evil by learning the truth through prayer and scripture study. Okay, so I want to talk about Shifra and Pua. Now, Shifra and Pua, you may be like, who are these people? Because I've never even heard of them. Okay, so what was going on here? And this is in Exodus 1 that we see Shifra and Pua's story. So the children of Israel are becoming numerous. Like they're spreading out. They're having babies left and right, and they're kind of like over outnumbering the Egyptians. And the Egyptian king gets wind of this, and he's like, okay, so we need to stop them becoming so numerous because they could rise up and, you know, take us over. So he commands all the midwives in the kingdom to go and kill all the baby boys as they are being born. In Exodus 1.15 we read, And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, see them upon the stools, and if it be a son, then ye shall kill them, and if it be a daughter, then she shall live. So, here's the thing. You have these midwives in ancient Israel, like ancient, ancient Israel, old-time Israel, and they would help women have babies by sitting on the birthing stools and gravity would kind of help the babies come out that way, right? So you have Shifra and Pua. Now, Shifra and Pua, we see in verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. They chose their truth. The truth that they chose was to keep life alive and to protect life and to do what they knew God would want them to do. That was the truth that they protected. And I specifically chose them for gird your loins because they're talking about the reproductive area. You know, Shifra and Pua are midwives, so it's perfect for that. And then the king of Egypt calls for these midwives and says unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwife said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. So, it's funny to me that these were the two ladies that came to my mind when I started thinking about having your loins girt about with truth. Because... I don't know if this was a white lie that they told to Pharaoh or if this was actually the truth. Maybe because the Hebrew women were so physically active, it was true that their babies arrived. And maybe, you know, Shifra and Pua kind of dragged their feet a little bit to the birth, hoping that the male babies would get born without them. So I don't know if this is a white lie or maybe a stretching of the truth here. But it was interesting to me that 
their story was what came to mind when I thought about girding my loins with truth. And the reason it came to mind was because they chose a greater truth. And the truth was that they protected life. And this in ancient Israel means even more because a lot of times the midwives in ancient Israel were barren themselves. They were not able to have children, or maybe their children had gone on and died, or they'd gone on and grown old and left, you know, these women by themselves. And so they were childless. Usually the midwives were childless. And so Shifra and Pua, in this particular instance, even though they were childless, they chose this calling of bearing record to the birth of life and helping the birth of life and, you know, helping these babies be birthed into this world. And then once they were birthed into this, this world, they were faithful to the truth that they knew from God, which was to protect life at all costs. Because they could have been put to death for this. Also, I tend to think that it wasn't just Shifra and Pua that were taking, you know, part in this particular campaign to save the male babies of the Hebrews. I bet that there were other midwives out there as well. And pure conjecture on my part, okay, this is gospel according to Lexi, so why were Shifra and Pua named? Maybe they were the head midwives, maybe. Or maybe Moses was one of those babies that they happened to save, and because of that, their names are recorded. I don't know. Gospel according to Lexi. I chose Shifra and Pua to kind of represent girding your loins with truth because we as women, and guys, I'm sorry if there are guys listening to this, but I felt just really strongly about women and how the armor of God applies to us as women and mothers. But we as women have the responsibility to protect life in all forms and in whatever stage of life that we are in to protect life and to protect children and to rear them up and raise them up in righteousness, even if they're not our own children. Because Shifra and Pua feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, we see in verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. And it came to pass because the midwives feared God, he made them houses, which means that they had families and they had progeny. And that is a huge blessing, especially among ancient Israel to a barren woman. All of a sudden now they had children in their lives. So that was kind of a really cool story. I love that story in Exodus. So I wanted to share that with you guys. Okay, thank you so much for sticking with me through all of that. Um, As I mentioned, I will have a packet of materials for the Armor of God if you want to do it with your family in like family home evening or whatever. Um, It'll be on my blog and it will be on my Facebook page. Sorry, my Instagram followers. There's just not links in Instagram, so it's hard to put this stuff out there. But you can check out my Facebook page or my blog for it. Um, Also, I will release the content that I have previously recorded that kind of explains how I used each one of the items in the Armor of God activity that I did at girls camp of months ago. So anyways, guys, keep being awesome. Know that your heavenly father loves you. I love you too. Have a great week. Bye y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.